0: I'm going to move back some of these microphones. Uh, This morning we're doing something slightly different. We're going at this uh, whole message thing from uh, a bit more of a Bible study angle. And so I'm going to use the whiteboard and kind of talk you through a passage. We're talking about getting on the same compass heading. We're kind of getting together as, as families in this message. We're thinking about how to understand a single direction. A few years ago, I went to what is still the most fun graduation I've ever been to. How many of you just love graduations? You look forward every year to going and listening to those long commencement addresses and watching these you know hundreds and thousands of people, sometimes if it's a major state university, as the as the graduates go up in the you all love that, right? These things are boring, right? I'm not the only one. Now, if your kids or grandkids graduate and you invite me, I will come. And I will smile because I'm very good at it. Um, but I won't be smiling in my heart. You know what I'm saying? Commencement. I'll, I'll look forward to my kids' graduation. But commencement is very important for the people graduating. It's not all that important for the people in the crowd. We just don't love it. And uh, I so I went to my friend John, graduated from police academy. So instead of it being this major graduation experience, it was just a few people in this auditorium that was about this size. And I think there was 25 uh, cadets graduating. It wasn't a college graduation. It was this whole training program to get him into uh, a police force. And uh, the interesting thing was there was a lot of humor to the police uh, graduation. It's very different when I go to high school or or college graduations. And and one of the things they did is they made fun of each other a lot. And, you know, after nine months to a year of hanging out, these cadets, they all got really accustomed to each other's strengths and weaknesses. And they had, uh, the president of the class was a female cadet, and they had kind of uh, waited for the the propitious moment to kind of roast her during this graduation. And the whole class is up there. And there's, there's males and females and everybody's up there. But, but this female who was the head of the class and was obviously somebody who was quite accomplished, uh, she, uh, she had led her group. There was, a, there was an exercise during the course of their police academy training where they all got dropped out into these woods. And they were all supposed to converge on a single point. And they had maps and they had compasses. And they were all supposed to get there. And the, the, out of five teams, four of them got there And this woman, who was the president of the class, didn't get there. And they all sat there and they waited. And she still didn't get there. And they waited longer. And they started to, you know, break the radio silence and say, where are you? And on the other end of the phone comes or the the walkie-talkie or whatever they were using came this tremoring voice, I have no idea where I am. And, and as it turns out, while everybody converged, she diverged and she headed out to who knows where and her team with her. And they all just kind of went that way. And they actually had to send somebody to go pick up these police cadets. Now, she still graduated and so did that whole team, but it was kind of interesting. If we're not on the same compass pat- pointing, if we're not headed towards a single point, and today in the era of GPS, you know, we all kind of have this thing that, do you know what a GPS is? I'll, I just assume everybody knows what that is. Global positioning system. My car has a global positioning system now, and it costs less than $100. It's not that expensive. But it, yeah, actually, and with Pennsylvania roads, I need a global positioning system. I'm just telling you, being from the Midwest. But we actually need to converge as families on a single point. We have to get at the same uh, direction and, th- and this woman, a- as it turns out, it, it, she had something metal on her, and her compass was actually going awry because of the metal on her body. And, and, and that, that, that sent her thinking, you know, if north was really there, she was going off that direction. Does that make sense? And everybody had this kind of understanding of they were supposed to go this one direction, and, and, and they were all coming at it from different points, but they were going to locate at a single position. And, and she ended up who knows where. How many of you have felt like your families were like that? Where everybody converged at a single point except for, and don't say the name. We don't want to hear it, you know? I've felt that way. Sometimes I felt like I was the person who didn't converge. Shelby and I joke about the fact that, honestly, uh, when I stay home, our family is a little bit rougher because I'm not used to the pattern of family. I'm always gone. And when I stay home for a whole day, it is just very, very difficult. Robin, you're, you're, you're shaking your head. Okay, so I I have somebody who understands this phenomenon. When I come in, I cause the family all sorts of stress. I have my ideas of how a family should run, but I'm not actually there most days to make the family run that way. And so the family is doing its own thing, and then I come in and say, hey, why do we do it this way? And Shelby says, well, we always do it this way, (laughs) you know, and we're not on the same compass heading. I was thinking about that this week, and uh, there's a lot of passages in the scripture about family. There's a lot of really easy, simple wisdom. Uh, You know, we could look at passages like Proverbs, which is filled with godly wisdom about how to raise a family. Um, And we could talk about passages like Ephesians 5 and 6, which are specifically designed to talk about how to walk wisely inside a church context as a family. And we could talk about these different passages, but I I started to think about it from a different angle. And I started to think about that angle where you realize that the the greatest father, when you come to the Lord's Prayer, it says, our father who is in heaven, the greatest father is God. He is your father. He is my father. And, you know, his children haven't been converging on the points where he told them to converge necessarily throughout his parenting. Wouldn't you agree? We haven't all just ended up at the same place you know, when my family gets together, it seems like there's always somebody out of sorts. And I think when God's family gets together, it seems like there's someone always out of sorts. One of the reasons for that is because I think we haven't gone to the school of understanding parenting from God's angle. We understand it from our angle. We try to get practical about this. We try to get kind of behavioral and understand our, our sort of uh, level of understanding. But I want to this morning spend a little bit of time talking about God's angle where he comes from. And in order to do that, I'm going to take you to a passage which is maybe the most counterintuitive passage on the subject of parenting that we could probably find in all of the Bible. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis ch- chapter 22. And we're literally going to walk through this story. Now, in order to do it, I'm going to, I'm going to steal a little bit from Dave Willauer who told me recently, and Dave, you can correct me. I probably am going to butcher exactly what it was you said. But on an educational level, I'm going to write these three words across the top. You, you start educating your kids. My marker's not working the way I wish it did. But we start educating our kids by doing things. We do, they watch, right? So Shelby makes macaroni and cheese, and the other day she left uh, to go do something, and she left me at home with the kids, and, and Sophie decided that she could make macaroni and cheese because she watches Shelby. That's the first level. And you know what? She, I, I wouldn't let her make macaroni and cheese because it involves boiling water, which isn't good for a six-year-old. But she described how to make macaroni and cheese, and you know she knows how to do it. She's watched it so often that she understands how to do it, which again, brings us to the second level of good parenting, which is that we do together. We journey together. We do stuff together that after the kid has watched, the parent and the kid do it together. And then there's that third level, and I'm going to kind of... I forget how you put this, Dave. You don't remember either. But I'm just going to rephrase it to look like this. The third level is we let go. Okay? The third level is we let go. We, 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 we watch, they watch what we do, then we do it together, and then we let go, which really means they go do it. Whatever it is, they go accomplish whatever that is, and they go after it, and they and they try to do what we've been telling them to do or showing them how to do. And uh, so that's, that's the process. And as we walk through this passage, which is a really strange passage, I hope that's going to kind of come to understanding. You're going to kind of, it's going to make sense out of this difficult passage. Now, some of you are looking at the headers in your Bible and you're going, I can't believe we're looking at this passage. This is the passage, it, honestly, uh, it may be the most poignant passage in the Old Testament. If you're, if you're looking at any passage that's a tearjerker, this is it. It's a difficult passage to read. I remember when I was in seminary, I had to translate it from Hebrew, and me and another guy got there early before class, and we sat there translating this passage. And it's, there's nothing uh, magical about Hebrew. There's nothing amazing about it, but except you go a lot slower when you're reading it. You just you you notice every word. And I got to about the middle of this passage, and I I, I felt a tear trickle down my cheek because I was watching. This story unfold and you realize that it is that poignant. It's that frightening in some ways and it's also that powerful So i'm going to begin reading for you This is the story where abraham is called by god to sacrifice his son Which is a completely different angle on parenting But i'll tell you that I believe it is the most broadly reaching Passage or most broad-reaching understanding of what it means to be a parent in the in the scriptures It is what it truly means to be a parent after God's style. So now it came about, after these things, that God tested Abraham. You know, we always have to ask ourselves when it says, after these things, that we've got to go back and wonder, what are those things? And the things that we're talking about is that Abraham, after a, a century, literally, of not having any children, has just had his first son through his wife. He's actually had another son through through another relationship. But this is the first time he's had a son with his wife, Sarah. She's over 90 years old, and he's 100 years old. And and so what this passage is referring to is after all of this time waiting, after all of this time hoping that he would have a son, God has finally brought him one, okay? So you have to think, this guy has waited a long time for this one young boy who is with him in this story. And he said, And God said to Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, Abraham, and, got, and Abraham said, Here I am. What's the first level of parenting that we that I put on the board? I'm not looking. This is going to require that you respond. We do, they watch. What is What, what, what does it take in, for us to hear from God? What does it take? We do, they watch. Isaac's watching in the story. He hasn't occurred in the story yet, but this is Abraham's son. Abraham's son is watching, and God is talking, and Abraham hears. Does God talk today? God talked to you? God talked to me? God talked 50 years ago? Did God talk 200 B.C.? God obviously talked 2,000 B.C. You know, I don't think there's ever been a time when God didn't talk, wouldn't you say? There's been a lot of times when we didn't listen. Wouldn't you agree with that? What does it take for us to hear God speak? It takes us listening. It takes active listening, right? You know, every now and then my parents call from Michigan and they want to talk to the kids. They mostly want to talk to the kids. They don't only really talking talk to me anymore. They've stopped reading me that nice story that Christine read for us and they've now started to read it to my, my kids, their grandkids. And so they'll get on the phone and, Ma- and they'll say, can I talk to Maggie? And Maggie will take the phone and she will wander off and she'll be jabbering away. And I wonder like 10 minutes later, what happened to that whole conversation? And all of a sudden Maggie will parade through the room and no phone. The phone's somewhere else, and I'll go around the house listening, and I'll hear my mom on the other end of a phone distantly saying, Hello, is anybody there? You know? God spoke to Abraham, and Abraham heard him. The, the thing that you hear Abraham do more often than any other thing in Genesis, if you read the book of Genesis, is that he builds these places to contact God called altars. There's these worshipful moments where he builds an altar here or there, and he goes across the land, and he lives like a Bedouin, but he becomes a person who communicates with God. And if you, were, if you were Isaac, if you were Abraham's son, and you were watching him, what you would watch is this man become somebody who had a personal relationship with Christ. So everywhere he goes, he's listening to God. It's not by accident that God speaks, and Abraham is right there to say, here I am, God, right here, ready to hear you. And what God's going to say in this passage is not a lot of fun, but Abraham is there to listen. And that's the first thing you want to notice. It goes on to say, and and he says, take now your son. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's the word please. And there's almost no other example in the Old Testament of God saying please. God commands people to do things. God says, you do this. But here it says, please take now your son. And that's supposed to set us up for the fact that what's going to happen in this passage is, is, is emotional. It's God's going a lot further than usual as far as asking something of his of his child Abraham Take now your son your only son whom you love Isaac notice the the highlighting of the fact that Abraham loves this son and go to the land of Moriah And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you What do you think happened at that point in the conversation? Abraham and God have had a lot of conversations at this point. They've been talking for decades. What do you think Abraham's response was to this? No way. No way. Except I don't think he said that to God. I suspect he just sat there in absolute stunned silence. I can't believe you just gave me a son and you're going to take him away. You're going to take my son. This doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't you agree? Now, now, most of you in this room, hopefully some of you don't know the end of the story, but most most of you know, you got to act like you don't. Because Abraham doesn't. Abraham has no idea at this point whatsoever that the end of the story is going to end the way it does. What he thinks is, this is it. God is taking my son. Terrifying. Frightening. This God who he's seen do amazing things. There's no argument. There's no questioning. I suspect there's actually only silence. What Deb said is probably what I would say. What Abraham said is not completely recorded. But from all that we know, there's no argument. The Bible records all sorts of people who argue with God. Moses, Jeremiah, other prophets. They have no holds barred arguments with God. Abraham doesn't. He's just silent. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. And you need to know, when it talks about getting out of bed, there's two words in Hebrew. There's one that says early, and there's one that just says he got up. And this one is the one he got up early. You know, you know, you ever have a bad day coming? You just know ahead of time it's going to be a rough, rough, rough day. You ever have one of those days? Do you... Do you... Do you get up early and face the day or do you stay in bed till about 9.15 pushing snooze 37 times? You know? This passage tells us that Abraham got up early. He faced the fact and said, okay, God has called me to do this. And he gets up early and he saddles his donkey and takes two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He gets up and he goes, what are you watching if you're Abraham's son in this story? What are you seeing? He listens to God first, right? So the first level of what he's hearing is Abraham listens. Second, He acts. And he acts not just at any point, but he acts early. He takes intentional action. He goes after what God has commanded him. And this is, in all of the 66 books of Scripture, this side of Jesus Christ, I don't think any other human being has been asked to do a more difficult thing than this story contains. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, do you have a worse example? Do you have anything that could be tougher than than God calling on the phone and saying, I want your child? You know, I've cried at one funeral harder than any other funeral I've ever been at. And it was a funeral where I watched a mother lose her son. That's the toughest funeral I've ever been to. Some of you have been to a funeral like that. There's something about all of us that we expect to lose our parents, our uncles, our grandparents. But a parent losing a child, it's unthinkable. A parent causing the loss of that child is even less thinkable. Wouldn't you agree? And what Isaac's watching, although he doesn't know what the whole story is about, and he hasn't heard these words that God has shared with Abraham, he is watching as his dad listens to God. And he's watching as he acts early early and takes initial steps to do what God has commanded him to do. And this is going to be one of the most amazing stories of obedience in all of the scriptures. So, Abraham does something, and his son is watching. Keep reading. On the third day... Anybody have any, I mean, we're in the season of Lent, on the third day. Does that make you think of anything? Jesus. What happens on the third day? Jesus. The resurrection. A lot of things actually happen on the third day, but just ponder that. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And, and keep in mind that, you know, travel wasn't what it was. If, you, if God just calls and says, sacrifice your son, it might have been almost easier to do it instantly, but to walk next to that boy for three days with that boy not knowing what was going to happen at the end of the journey, wandering across this desert landscape, thinking, I've got to do this. Three straight days of this. The Bible doesn't record what's in Abraham's heart with his emotional level. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, it's just got to be torture for Abraham to walk. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. That's what actually happens. Why Abraham says it, I don't know. We will return to you. Hope, faith, something. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife that carried the coals around in a dish so they didn't they didn't have the lighters of our world so the two of them walked on together and just picture this walking on together that's one of two times you're going to hear this this very same phrase how are they walking the writer didn't have to tell us that right it it, kind of gives you the idea there's sometimes when i take a walk with my kids and i have i have a 32 inch inseam you know and my kids have like 16 inch inseams you know what i mean And I'm walking like this. And the other day, in fact, it was Thanksgiving Day of this year, I was taking Noah for a walk. The weather kind of got nice and it was just the two of us. And I was walking in my big, long strides. And Noah's behind me and he's running up the sidewalk and he's all excited. But his legs have to move like this when my legs are just doing this. You know what I'm saying? And he's not really walking with me. And then Noah finds a crack in the sidewalk and goes end for end. Some of you saw his face after that. He had this big kind of shiner and scratch mark on his face. And why why did he stumble and fall? Because he was trying to keep up with me, and I wasn't walking together with my son. I was out front. I was still living over here doing something, and Noah was watching, and he was trying to start doing what I was doing, right? He was trying to start to join in, but he's actually quite a ways behind me. And that caused a minor catastrophe in our lives. This story tells us that at this point, Abraham has slowed down, and he and Isaac are walking together. And they're now climbing the mountain after three days of arduous journey. They've left their servants behind, and they're walking together. And now what they're going to do is going to be together. It's going to be focused together. They're going to both kind of come to an understanding. If you miss that point, you won't in the next verse. Isaac finally speaks, and it's the first time and really the only time you hear him talk in this whole story. And Isaac speaks to his father, and he says, My father. And Abraham says, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, I see the fire. And the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? What's going on in Isaac's head? He's got a giant question mark. Where's the sheep? Abraham's reply. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. You hear it again. Walking on together. God will provide a lamb. you know when I read the story of the Gospels when I read Matthew or Mark or Luke there's this there's this connection that you see Jesus have with the father and you never see God's angle on it. I think one of the greatest things of heaven is we're going to find out what God the Father was thinking while his son did all these miracles and walked through life on earth and kind of set his his compass if you will, on Golgotha. You know, years before Jesus actually arrived at the hill where he would die, he knew he would die. Centuries, millenniums, eternity past, God always knew Jesus was marching for this moment. And you know what? Peter, James, and John, the closest friends that Jesus had on earth, didn't get it. Do you remember that? Who, who got the message and the plan and the tactic and the strategy of of Golgotha? Who understood Calvary? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as far as I can tell when I read the Gospels, no one else. The Father and the Son walked on together is a phrase you might want to think about during the Lent season. You might want to show up at the Tenebrae service uh, at the end of this season and, and think about the fact that what has been happening is that the Father and Son have walked through this together, and they're moving towards a moment of sacrifice. They're moving towards a moment of pain. And they're moving together. That's what Abraham and Isaac are doing in this very story. And they're doing it together. For, and, and that's the second level of parenting. This will all sort of make sense, I hope, at the end. But what happens is where, as we move forward is you start to see that Isaac is catching on. The Bible says that Jesus grew in favor with God and man and in wisdom and in stature. He didn't all of a sudden understand everything as a human being. The lifetime of Jesus was spent learning and growing and understanding of what God the Father's called for him. I don't know when it hit him that he was going to die, but I don't necessarily think he was 5 and knew that, or 12 and knew that. I don't know that at 25, Jesus knew that the ultimate culminating point of his earthly ministry would be to die and rise again, that it would end in pain and victory. He grew towards that point and he followed the father and they walked together to that point. Do you, do you follow how these stories parallel each other? Abraham and Isaac and the father God and Jesus his son. Then they came to the place of which God had told them and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham's how many years old? A hundred. Bobby Garger is what, 93? How, how, we have quite a few 90-year-olds, right? Who's the youngest person here? Not a not, not, not child, but somebody who's a teenager. Matt, you might be the closest thing. All right, let, let's get up here and have a wrestling match between Uncle Herb. Uncle Herb versus Maddie. Who do you think would win? <laughs> okay, bad example bad example. You know, the the thing about this is that Abraham has no chance of tying up this young man. There's no way this could happen unless Isaac accepted it. The fact is, Isaac knew at this point. He'd come to understand something, and he sat there and allowed his hands and feet to be tied. You know, there's no other example of a sacrifice being tied up in all of the scriptures. You didn't tie up a sheep. You didn't tie up a bull. You didn't tie up a ram. You didn't tie those animals up. You just killed them. This is the only time that a sacrifice is actually tied up. They came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And now now Isaac is literally sitting in the position. Now, does God love human sacrifice? No, right? The rest of the Old Testament proves that God finds this to be a haunting terrible scathing plague on did I say the word plague right I think I got it this time the word plague that that idea of plague it's a plague on humanity that people would kill each other it's terrible but nobody knows that in Abraham's time when people kill their children all the time to get in favor with God they thought if they sacrificed at the highest level that they would please their gods this God doesn't want human sacrifice there's no there's no level at which he would be even closely interested in human sacrifice And yet he's going to let Abraham think that. Abraham stretches out his hand and he takes the knife. Just think of the slowness of the language. He stretches out his hand and he takes the knife. And think about Isaac sitting there watching out of the corners of his eyes. I don't know which position he was in. I don't know how he was shaped on that altar. But wherever he was, I'm sure his head was swiveling to look for where Abraham's hand was going. The next question is where will this hand go? And he picks up the knife and and, and Isaac must have inhaled all of the air in the immediate vicinity. Wouldn't you agree? This is sheer terror. And it's hard to tell who's more afraid, Abraham or his son. Terrifying. Abraham stretches out his hand and he takes the knife to slay his son. This is the moment, I suspect, when we have to admit that Abraham has truly let go. The Bible refers to Abraham as the father of many. You ever sing that song, Father Abraham? I am one of them, so are you. Let's praise the Lord. You ever heard that? Kemp Swatara, right? That's a Kemp Swatara song. Who's the son of Abraham in this story? Isaac's the son of Abraham. Who are these sons? You know, you're, you're a son of Abraham. I'm a son of Abraham. In one sense, what Abraham's doing in this story will change the history of mankind. It will help us to understand what it means to parent effectively. It will help us to understand what we are supposed to do in the way of getting on the same compass heading. Without this story and without the story of the scriptures that refers to the, the servanthood of parenting, the servanthood of being a child, the servanthood of what it takes to sacrifice the people we love and the things we love at the highest level, without that, we don't get on the right compass. What we naturally do is we protect, we hold on to the people in our in our immediate vicinity. We grab hold of them and we, we protect them from any harm whatsoever. We decide we, we would never allow harm to be befall our child. The other day I was, at the, I was at, out in front of Franklin Elementary with my daughter Maggie and, and they don't allow buses to pull up in the street in front of that except for one bus. It's the, it's the daycare bus. And the bus pulls up and, and I didn't see her but somehow Maggie got behind this woman who I was talking to and she got about right here and she ran out in the street right in front of this bus. And this woman screamed just in time for me to realize and I grabbed Maggie by the coat and I ripped her back. Now I think that bus would have stopped anyways. But I wasn't wasting any time. My impulse as a parent is to protect. And Maggie got a very, very stern talking to after that, right? We're we're raised in our mindset to protect our child, to provide for our child, to, to, to think that what we want for our children is to be a success. What if God thought that way? What if God's primary thought was saving his son? You know, what, what what this story is about is the fact that the living God reached down into a human life and showed us that in order to be good parents, we were going to have to sacrifice our kids. We were going to have to look at our kids and decide that the job of parenting and grandparenting and being an influence in this world is primarily about letting go. The the most control we ever have over our children is when they're tiny little infants, and we have to do everything for them. We have to change them. We have to feed them. We have to put them to bed. We have to get them up. We have to bathe them. They do nothing for themselves. And about six, we wish they were back to that place where we still bathe them and still fed them, and we could stick a bottle in their mouth when they talk too much. At 18, some people still wish their kids were six or two or two months. At 25, some people wish their kids would move out of the house. At 40, 50, sometimes we get so latched on to our kids that we just protect them and hold them, and we we forget that the greatest call of parenting is that we raise those kids to be people who fear and love the Lord Jesus Christ, and they serve him. Abraham was willing for his son, who he waited a century to gain, he was willing to decide that it was his job to serve, and so he lets go. He lets go in the face of the command of God, the the plaintive command of God, the plaintive command that God calls out to him and says, please let go of your son, please take him to this altar and sacrifice. Now, what's happening in this story is that Isaac is being changed. And frankly, all of the descendants of Abraham are being changed. No more can they think it's just okay to live kind of semi-godly lives that are not so passionate but are very, very moral where everybody is protected and lives in these little these little dwellings and cares for each other. Now they have to realize that their God requires absolute sacrifice. He doesn't want our kids dead. He doesn't want our lives to hurt. What he wants is for us to put him first. And he says there's no shape or form, there's no advice in parenting that will ever take the place of the fact that we have to put God first at this level. That our kids have to see us put our time, in, a, order our time and our resources in a way that we are able to listen to God so that when we hear the command of God, we can do, do what God has called us to do. And what's more is we can take those kids with us and we start to stretch out and go after God. And what's more is they have to see us take risks for God, not stupid risks, not just jump out and do whatever it is risk, but actually risks where we've listened to God and he's called us to step out and do something for him. And we take those kids with us and off we go. And at some point along the line, when we step out and risk, when we step out and we we obey God on this level we've never obeyed him before, it it occurs to us, what if the thing it costs us is our kids? And we have to decide what's more important, God or our children? Are we raising these kids to fear God or are we raising them to be protected? Are we raising them to be provided for? Are we raising them just to sit over here as kind of normal middle-class American kids? What's the call of God? On our lives. So Abraham is willing and he stretches out his hand and he takes up the knife, and you'll have to admit along with me that there's no greater example this side of God the Father of a parent who lets go of his son. Isaac's getting a message, and the message is as important as he is, as much as he is loved, he's not as important as God is to Abraham. And he said, The angel, that is, said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. When Tim and I were praying before this, I thought, What does God see when he looks inside the heart of Josh? You know, the word fear God is not one we like so much, but it's the word that most conveys righteous, holy living in the Old Testament. Does God look inside the heart of Josh and see somebody who fears him, who respects him, who lives in honor of God? Or does he look inside and see all these places where I have things in front of in front of him on my priority list? The word, uh, maybe the most famous verse in all of the scriptures, you know it, right? What would you say? Every NBA basketball game you see a sign, every football game. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And what did that love cause him to do? Caused him to give up the son. God so loved the world that he gave his son. God has been saying that line. That is the call to parents everywhere. It is the call to grandparents. It is the call to people who love each other. Give each other up to the living God and sacrifice and serve. Do you know when the the Old Testament gets translated into Greek, it's about 100 B.C. And these guys get together and they try to think of all these cool words in Greek that translate Hebrew into Greek. And you don't want to hear me talk about that language. But I got to tell you that that word that says, for God so loved, agape love, the word in Greek is agapetas. You know what word they use to translate Genesis chapter 22 and look at verse 2? God says to Abraham, please take now your son, your only son, whom you love. What word do you think the Old Testament people in about 100 years before Christ used to translate that word? The very same exact word from John 3.16. For God so loved the world. You know, Abraham so loved his son. And God said, if you love him, let him go. I'll change them. I'll transform them. I'll create a race of people through them. I'll change the world. I'll bless the world. I will save the world. I will save the world, but I can only do it if you let go. Hang on too tightly, and it's over. Who's the great parent? Is it Josh Boywork who can protect his kids, who can try to work harder and provide for his kids, or is it God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Who is the great parent? I think parenting and grandparenting and loving people all looks the same. It all looks like we hold on tightly at the start and we slowly get our fingers pried away from the people we love over time. We let go. In order to be on the same compass, we as families have to understand that what we're doing is we're stopping the control pattern in our society. We're stopping the leadership that says these kids won't be allowed to fail. They will fail and they will be allowed to. And if you don't decide that, they'll fail anyway. You'll just be a little too close for comfort when they do. This never says stop loving. You never see Abraham disengage his heart and just decide, okay, I'm going to sacrifice this kid. I don't care for him anymore. What you see is a painful love following through all the way. The end of the story, the end of the story I have to tell you is that God provides and Abraham finds a ram in a thicket and, and Isaac is never sacrificed as most of you know. And God was never interested in Isaac being sacrificed. And Abraham gives God a name. He says, Jehovah Jireh, it's up there on the cross. And it literally means God will provide. You know what your kids need to see? Your kids need to watch you believing that God will provide. They need to, to walk with you through together as you watch God providing for life. And they need to be let go and allowed to let God provide for them when you no longer can. God provides. It's his job. Josh doesn't provide. Dads don't provide. Grandparents don't provide. Mothers don't provide. God provides. Join me in prayer. Living God, there is a danger in our hearts. We would end up like my friend, the police cadet. We would end up on the far side of yonder hill heading the exactly wrong direction. And we would do it thinking we were living out the scriptures. We would think we were called to protect and care for our kids. We would think that we were called to to bless them and that it's all about hugs and all about making macaroni and cheese. And truthfully, at some points, Lord, it's all about discipline. Sometimes, Lord, it's about sleepless nights of prayer and going before the throne of grace and saying, God, I'm going to sacrifice my kids, but you need to pick them up. Lord, maybe for us it means that we re-engage in prayer and we decide that we're not going to be mad at kids that have angered us as they've thwarted our attempts to control their lives or as as we've decided that we were going to be the parent who stayed attached. Maybe the thing for us is that we have to give up on that this morning. Maybe we have to, in order to love you and to love them, give up. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. May our primary goal in par- parenting and grandparenting and being people who influence each other's lives, may our primary goal be to raise people who serve you. May it not be to raise protected, successful middle-class little, little people, who know how to get along in corporate America, may we understand that our primary call is to raise people who would give their whole lives to you. Sacrifice every inch of who they are, and may they see us sacrifice every inch of who we are in order to understand that. Lord, this story speaks beyond my ability to communicate. It's so filled with gravity and profundity, Lord, that we need you to help us to live it out in our lives. It's beyond us, and we ask that you would do it. For you did it most righteously. Well, Abraham held back the knife, and the angel called from heaven and said, Hold, don't hurt the young boy. You never gave that command. The Son of God sat on a cross, Lord God, and you didn't issue that command. You saved us by not saving you. Thank you, Lord God, this morning. In Jesus' name.